Do you feel the spirit of the Lord in this place today? Amen. Amen. I pray that you do. I pray that you do today. I pray that no matter how you entered into this space today, that you experience and feel the presence of our Lord's spirit with us. And then as you do, you would experience the fullness of his touch and embrace for you today because we are believing for even greater things today. We are believing that the Lord will guide us and direct us as we take our steps with him today, whether today be your very first time or you've been journeying us, journeying with us for years. We welcome you and we are inviting God to lead us onward today. Now you saw the symbols in the opening video and I want you to take a moment as we work through this message together and as we even go through this series to think about what those symbols might mean because there's more than meets the eye. When we read the scriptures together, we can read them on the surface and certainly God speaks to us, but there's typically always more than meets the eye. And as we begin a new series on our journey through the book of Numbers, today's passage, chapters 22 through 24, tells the story of a new generation, the wilderness generation, who for the first time in their history stood within reach of their land. The previous series that we just finished last week tells the story of the Exodus generation, the generation that God led out of slavery, but through their disobedience ended up wandering for 40 years. And only two of the millions entered into the promised land from that original generation. Not Moses, not Aaron, not the leaders of the Israelites, but Joshua and Caleb. Only Joshua and Caleb saw that land because they remained faithful through it all, no matter what they faced. And now, the old generation has passed, the new generation is rising, and for the first time now, they're standing on the banks. They can see the land on the other side of the mighty Jordan. They can almost taste the wafting scent of milk and honey on their lips. They are right there. Right there. Have you ever been on the cusp of something that's just right there? Something you've been dreaming about and thinking about and praying for for maybe years and you, you are right there. So close, you can almost touch it. And as the new generation amassed on the banks of the Jordan to cross over into their land, just on the other side, they faced an impossible challenge to overcome. But they remembered they remember God's faithfulness from 40 years earlier when the Exodus generation stood on the banks of the Red Sea. And so they waited, standing on the banks of the Jordan, waiting for God to work his miracle power once again so that they could all cross over into their promised land. But little did they know that even on the banks, even with the promised land right within their reach, that their wilderness journey wasn't over quite yet. <laughs> there were challenges still to face. And what happens next in these chapters, chapters 22, 23, and 24, exposes one of the toughest challenges that God's people faced back then and a challenge that we continue to experience today. And that is religious deception. Religious deception. Earlier this year, in the beginning of 2023, the Barna Research Group asked the general population, what causes you to doubt Christianity? 
whether or not you're part of the faith or not, what causes you to doubt it at the very least? From a list of 14 options that they presented to these individuals that included suffering, major ethical dilemmas like suffering, difficult theological doctrines like the resurrection, the number one issue that caused people to doubt the Christian faith among non-practicing Christians, people of other faiths, and people of no faiths was religious deception. Not issues with belief or concerns with the Bible or even major dilemmas like evil and suffering, but deception from trusted religious leaders. How awful. Barnett posed the same question to pastors. And they asked us, what do you believe causes people to doubt Christianity? And 80% of pastors surveyed said religious deception. Religious deception. Again, not beliefs, not ethics, but lies. Lies from those entrusted roles of spiritual authority, indicating once again that what causes people to either love Jesus or leave Jesus is people. People. We are God's best apologetic for the faith, for trusting, for taking a step of faith. As a kid, I remember singing this great old hymn, and maybe you remember singing it too, titled, They Will Know We Are Christians By Our Love. Do you remember singing that old hymn? For those of you who, who may have grown up in church, we need to take this title to heart and pay close attention to how we love others because for some of us here today, I know for a fact, it took a lot of courage for you just to walk into the doors of this room. Some with us right now know the pain of religious and spiritual deception all too well. And I want you to know that neither Pastor Bill, if he was here today, nor myself, take that for granted. It's on my mind and on my heart almost every time we gather together on a Sunday. I know that for some of you, you carry pain into this room because of how others in my role deceived you, how they lied to you, how they misled you. And I feel so thankful today for your presence with us. And I don't take it for granted. I feel confident to say that every pastor who serves with us and every leader who calls Christ's journey home strives with all our heart to help people find and follow Jesus with honesty and transparency. But I also know that we're not a perfect church. We're not a perfect church, and I'm certainly not perfect, but Jesus doesn't call us to perfection. He calls us to love. He calls us to love. And love doesn't deceive. But in Numbers chapter 22, Numbers chapter 22 introduces us to a false prophet named Balaam, who wasn't motivated by love, but rather greed. And we can learn from his story today. Even though it happened a long time ago, we can learn from his story today. As the new generation gathered on the banks of the Jordan River, the Moabite king, who occupied the land just on the other side of the Jordan River, saw vast numbers of people start to gather on the opposite side of his land, which to him only meant one thing, invasion. And so he called for a prophet named Balaam to curse those individuals on the other side of the Jordan River, hoping that perhaps an affliction or something would happen that would weaken their army so that he could stand a better chance to defeat them. 
And as compensation for Balaam's services, King Balak promised Balaam a nice payday if he could turn the odds into his direction. And so Balaam said this, stay here overnight. In the morning, I will tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. So the officials from Moab stayed there with Balaam. And that night, God showed up for Balaam. Our God, Yahweh God, showed up. And he said, do not go with them, with King Balak and his men. You are not to curse these people, the Israelites, for they have been blessed. And I will not let anything happen to people that I bless. The next morning, Balaam got up and told Balak's officials, go on home. The Lord will not let me go with you. <laughs> what a fascinating exchange between God and Balaam. I mean, who, who is Balaam? I mean, up until now, God had only spoken to Moses and Aaron. But here God spoke directly to this unknown prophet for hire and offered him a clear directive. Don't curse my people. So who is Balaam? And what exactly is happening in this exchange? Well, Balaam's a bit of a mystery, truly. He's a diviner, a magician, a seer, a man with the reputation among kings. Notice how when, when all these people amassed on the other side of the Jordan River, King Balak didn't call for his generals to come and strategize how to defend against this, this mass of people. Instead, he called for this prophet named Balaam. So apparently he has a reputation among kings to get things done. He's a private contractor who doesn't discriminate on how he gets paid. And as we just read, he also seems to possess at least some ability to pray and discern the will of God, even though he isn't one among God's people. And this is a tension for us as we read the Old Testament, because on certain occasions, God seems to work through others not part of his chosen people to accomplish his will. And it's a tension for us when we read this in the scriptures. Some examples of this include a Canaanite woman named Rahab who gave safety to two scouts from Israel who ultimately helped them overtake Jericho when they first entered into the promised land. Another example of this is a man named King Cyrus. It's King Cyrus, a Persian king who defeated the Babylonians and freed the Israelites to return home from their captivity. Neither one of these individuals were part of God's chosen people and yet their work had ex extreme positive consequence for God's people. And though Balaam isn't among the chosen, like these others, he still belongs to God, right? He was endowed with certain gifts, apparently, for communing with God, Yahweh God, and, and the spiritual powers of sorts. It's, it's mysterious, I know. He was created in God's image, you know, it, it's, it's a tension. Hence why God can work through anyone he sees fit to accomplish his will, because ultimately all people belong to God. Which in this instance was for him to leave his people alone. <laughs> Don't you curse them, because I have blessed them, God says. And so here God is working through this unknown prophet to protect his people. Throughout the centuries, scholars have really disputed whether or not Balaam was a good prophet turned bad or a bad prophet turned good. And no one quite knows Balaam's context and history prior to Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24. But in this passage, 
the author gives us a subtle but powerful clue in the text itself to help us know Balaam's true allegiance. In chapters 22 through 24, each time that Balaam referred to God, he used God's proper name, which is Yahweh. Yahweh is God's real true name. Yo, head, vav, head. I am who I am which translates in our English Bible as Lord in all capital letters. So as you read through the Old Testament, anytime you see the word Lord in your Bible, in all capital letters, the Hebrew translation of that word is Yahweh, the Lord's proper name. And here we see Balaam using the Lord's proper name each and every single time. And on the surface, this all appears right and good. Whoa, Balaam. Hey, way to go, Balaam. You seem to know this God. You seem to understand the character and the heart of our one true God, Yahweh. But each time that Balaam calls God Yahweh, the author of Numbers follows up with God's generic name, Elohim, which simply translates as God. And we see this in the text right here. This is just one example. We see this in each one of these three chapters, but here's a good example. That night God told Balaam, that's the author speaking, and God uses, and I'm sorry, the author uses the word Elohim, which simply translates as God. Here, the Lord will not let me go with you. Here's Balaam speaking, and he's using the Lord's proper name, Yahweh. And in this subtle distinction that we can see in our own texts, what, what we're truly seeing, something more than meets the eye, is the author telling us that behind the pleasantries of Balaam's colorful language, behind this sense of knowing, truly, Balaam just thinks of our God as one among the gods. That's it. He's not on team Yahweh any more than any one of these other false prophets are on team Yahweh. Balaam might use his name but that's how Balaam really thinks about God. He's just one among many. Upon receiving Balaam's initial response, King Balak didn't accept no for an answer. Instead, he sent a larger delegation with more money on the table. But Balaam responded to Balak's messengers, saying, even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord my God. Once again, using the Lord's proper name, Yahweh, which... Again, on the surface, whoa, way to go, Balaam, for obeying God's message. Way to go. The Lord made his intentions clear, and this should be where the story ends. There shouldn't be a Numbers 23 and 24 if truly Balaam wore Team Yahweh's jersey. But there's more than meets the eye. And I want to invite you to read scripture like this, to to ask the questions happening underneath the surface and ask what might, be, what, what might be the subtleties at work here. Because instead of Balaam just walking away and saying the Lord spoke, that's it. Balaam said, hey, but stay here one more night. Hey, and I'll see if the Lord has anything else to say to me. Hey, perhaps the Lord might change his mind. I mean, don't we all hope for that? Oh, man. You know, I kind of sense the Lord may have said this to me, but I'm kind of still hoping that the Lord might change his mind. <laughs> I'll sleep on it. Let's try again tomorrow. Hey, you know, the, the Lord, you know, outwardly Balaam projected what the Lord wanted him to say, but I think deep down, 
given these subtle clues, even that we've seen thus far, I truly think that Balaam did hope for that palace full of gold. He, he did hope that, you know, maybe something might transpire from this. Maybe if we just wait another night, maybe, maybe God might speak to me again and, and lead us down a different road that, hey, might, might result in a good payday for me. So instead of letting God's word stand, he hedged. He hedged. And on the one hand, you know, as we read these stories, I am well aware that Balaam for, you know, it's 2023. You know, Balaam stands apart from us, right? As a swindler prophet who lived hundreds, thousands of years ago. Okay. He's a character that's hard to relate to. But on the other hand, there's a little, Balaam that, a little bit of Balaam that lives in every single one of us. Every single one of us. We've all misled others for our own gain. And if we read this story too quickly, then we miss, we miss what the Lord might be speaking to us. And then we put ourselves at risk in succumbing to people like Balaam. And so as the Lord often does with each one of us, he adapted to Balaam's disobedience. God clearly said what not to do. But since Balaam chose Team Balaam, the Lord said, well, go with these men then. But do only what I tell you to do. The next day, Balaam and the delegation returned to Balak. But God wasn't pleased with Balak's decision. And like a parent with a child who's disobedient, the Lord raised the intensity of his volume. And rather than merely speaking to Balaam on his way to the delegation, on his way to see King Balak, God sent an angel to stand right in Balaam's way. But initially, Balaam didn't notice God's angel. Do you know who did notice God's angel? Balaam's donkey noticed God's angel. Truly, read the story. Balaam's donkey noticed. You know, it's, you know your eyes aren't fixed on the right thing when your donkey sees something before you. <laughs> Truly. You, you, that's what greed does to us. That's what any type of sin does to us. It, it blinds us to see what's, what God wants to do in us, through us, and with us right in front of our own eyes. Three times the donkey tried to avoid the angel, but each time Balaam beat his donkey to keep it, keep it moving forward with the delegation until finally God gave the donkey the ability to speak, which again is one of the more bizarre moments in the Bible. And I want to encourage you to read this for yourself. This is a multi-layered passage. This conversation between Balak and his donkey, which we unfortunately don't have enough time to enter into today, but I want to invite you to read this because Balaam's an outsider. The donkey's even more outside, right? But God will stop at nothing to guard his people and to see his will be done. That's the lesson from the conversation between Balaam and his donkey. And then finally, Balaam's eyes opened and he saw the angel standing in front of him. And upon seeing the angel, Balaam confessed his sin to God and then proceeded to offer four messages that God gave to him to speak to King Balak. The first three messages offer a blessing to Israel and reiterate God's unwavering commitment to his people. God will not budge on his covenant faithfulness to his people. That's, that's the takeaway. In fact, in Balaam's second message, God speaks through him a verse 
that many Christ followers have committed to memory throughout the history of the church, which said, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? This is one of the great verses of our faith. And this was spoken from the mouth of a false prophet, indicating that God will use whoever he chooses to use to see his will be done. In Balaam's fourth and final message, God speaks to King Balak this time. He shifts his focus from God's people now to King Balak to talk about the future of the Moabite people. And here, Balaam offers one of the very first prophecies about Jesus in this message. God speaks to Balaam saying, I see him, meaning Yahweh God, I I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future, a star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. What do you hear in these words? This prophecy foretells the Christmas star, the Bethlehem star, that guided the Magi from the east, the three wise men, to offer their gifts of admiration to Jesus at his birth. The incarnate Yahweh God, our one true Lord. How fitting that God gave Balaam this prophecy to speak in so many ways. Because even as a false prophet, Balaam worked in the same industry (laughs) as these three wise men. They were all diviners. They were all seers. They were all magicians and had some kind of spiritual connection with, with the world and with things unseen. But the difference between these three magi who came to bring gifts to Jesus and Balaam was that these three wise men saw Jesus for he truly was. And Balaam missed it. Balaam missed it. Following Balaam's fourth message, however, King Balak didn't stop there. (laughs) He wanted to preserve his land and he wasn't going to let these people cross over the Jordan and take it from him. And so Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, tell what happened next. While the Israelites camped at Acacia Grove, the camp right across the Jordan, just a few miles from Moab, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods, so the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. They essentially became Moabites. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against this people. And if you fast forward just a few chapters in Numbers chapter 31, guess who invited those Moabite women into the camp? Balaam. Balaam. There's more than meets the eye with this guy. He might talk a big game. He might be able to use our Lord's name. But ultimately, he deceived 24,000 men, and they lost their lives as a result of what they did. Balaam's story in these chapters, admittedly, is complex. Balaam's story is disturbing. And Balaam's story is all too common. Such is religious deception. Too many fall prey to the lies and selfishness of people like Balaam. In fact, this moment in history 
became a crucial lesson for God's people. In Deuteronomy, the very next book after Numbers, God instructed his people to keep their distance from the Moabites, saying, these nations didn't welcome you with food and water when you came out of Egypt. Instead, they hired who? Balaam, son of Beor from Pethor and distant Aram Naharaim to curse you. But the Lord your God refused to listen to Balaam. He turned his intended curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. He loves you and he's going to keep you and protect you. After God's people entered into the promised land, Joshua recounted all that God did for God's people, including the moment when Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, started a war against Israel. He summoned who? Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you but I would not listen to him. Instead, I made Balaam bless you in those first three messages. And so I rescued you from Balak. And ultimately, they were allowed to cross over and take their land, take what was rightfully theirs. Nehemiah mentions Balaam. The prophet Micah mentions Balaam. In the New Testament, when Jesus' chief disciple, Peter, warned the early church about false teachers, who did he compare them to? He wrote, false teachers have wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of who? Let's all say it together. Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. Greed, greed motivated Balaam. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him. (laughs) I love that. I kind of feel like Peter kind of like jabbed that in there to say, hey, for those false teachers, guess what? God's not opposed to using a donkey to keep them from doing harm to you. The book of Jude calls Balaam a false prophet. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, Jesus himself gives a warning to the church in Pergamum, one of the seven churches, saying, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of who? Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. That's the result of what happens when we listen to people who can use the Lord's name but show no fruit in their lives, who willingly seek to deceive us for their own gain. And like so many deceivers and hypocrites, Balaam's words matched all the right play calls. When you hear him, you think, oh yeah, Okay, yeah, that's, uh, that, sounds like, that sounds like something that I, I would hear. That sounds like the Bible. That sounds like Jesus. Okay, I'm with you. But his, de- his deception ultimately scored for Team Balaam. So how do we tell the difference between a pastor and a leader who seeks to faithfully serve and honor the Lord and then those who play with some other ulterior motive? Well, I think here's a simple scheme that we can use. If a leader goes high on the inside, high on the inside. A leader who thinks highly of oneself, then walk away. Just walk away. Even if what they say sounds so good to you, sounds pleasing to your ear, it might even sound motivating for you within our cultural standards, right? Like, it sounds good to you. Just walk away. If you can whiff some of that pride, some of that ego, just walk away from it. Don't risk it because the toll might cost you more than your soul can bear. It did for those 24,000 men. Don't risk it. 
Now, if a leader goes low to the outside, a leader who demonstrates humility and care for others, then proceed, but I still recommend that you proceed with caution. (laughs) Because you just never know. You never know. As a pastor and preacher, I don't recommend taking any spiritual leader at face value, including me. Don't take me at face value if you don't know me. Instead, listen, watch, and test. Test me. Test every spiritual leader according to God's word because you never know. You might discover that there might be more than meets the eye. And before you know it, you might be swept into a stream of deceit that takes you so far down road into isolation and into sin that it feels impossible to get out of it. The Apostle Paul wrote, don't stifle the Holy Spirit. Don't scoff at prophecies. We need this. We need the Holy Spirit at work. We we need fresh words spoken over us. These are good for you. But test everything that is said. Test everything that is said. That's why you hear Pastor Bill and myself say all the time, read this for yourself. Read it for yourself. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Here are a few questions that you can ask. Anytime you hear a spiritual leader teach, here are a few questions that you can ask yourself to help you test what is good. Does the teaching align with Jesus' teaching according to the four Gospels? Which means we need to know the four Gospels. If you, if you don't read any other books in the Bible, at least read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Get to know Jesus. Know his heart for you. Know his character. He's God incarnate, we believe. Does the teacher reflect the character and heart of Jesus in humility and service? Does the teacher bear the fruits of God's spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is the teacher connected with the faithful church? No one is above reproach. Nobody. Own your own faith development. Don't merely swallow what whatever some supposed teacher feeds you. (laughs) In fact, with so much unfiltered content available to us today in the form of podcasts, videos, social media, there has never been a time in history when this charge from 1 Thessalonians has mattered so much. Test. Test. Thus, uh, for us today, I want to close our time together with three practical next steps that we can take into this week. That is the Christ journey familia together to help us guard our hearts, guard our minds from deception or any other evil that seeks to splash on us using a familiar image from our own backyard. One of the hallmarks of living in South Florida is living with the mighty mangrove that protects our coastlines Right? At first sight, it kind of looks like an overgrown shrub. I mean, that's, at least that's what I thought when I first saw it when I moved to South Florida eight years ago. But there's so much more to these mangroves than meets the eye. And to that end, I need to give credit to John McWhorter for helping me to see these mangroves as an imaginative illustration of God's intelligent design for our ecosystem as well as for how the church might stand firm together against deception or against anything that seeks to harm us. The mangrove provides habitat for countless land and sea creatures. It cleanses our water from toxins. It helps maintain proper salinity in our oceans, protects our shorelines, including us, from erosion. How do they do this? 
First, they say interconnected. A single species of mangrove might grow for hundreds of yards. And here I'm reminded of Jesus' own words in John chapter 15, when he calls himself the true vine. Jesus invites us to graft our lives onto him. The deeper we grow into Jesus' vine, the stronger we become to withstand whatever storm might come our way. And as we grow together into an interconnected root system of healthy relationship and faithful connection together, we also become a safe habitat to help others find their lives connected into the vine of Jesus. You know, some of us, as I mentioned earlier, have not experienced healthy and faithful and safe relationships in a faith community like this. My prayer for us is that if you feel that way, that you would hear the good news of Jesus spoken over you, who says, come to me, all of you, who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, who've been burned by so-called people who use my name, and I will give you rest. Jesus is inviting you to receive his rest from the pain of another's abuse. Jesus is inviting us to bring our lives together in healthy, faithful ways and become interconnected together so that we can withstand whatever storm comes our way. So the action step, let's get connected. Let's get connected to one another. Hang around together. Make Sundays a priority. Keep coming, keep inviting, keep bringing, especially those who have experienced hurt so that they can experience the freshness of Jesus' presence with them here in this mangrove. Join a group. Serve on a team. Get involved. Get connected. Second, mangroves cleanse impurities from the environment. Life in the vine gives us access to Christ's sanctifying and cleansing spirit in our lives. When impurities like deceptions and lies splash all over us, prayer, prayer acts like a cleansing agent for our heart, our mind, our soul. It's almost like a bath, like a spiritual bath that could just wash off all that. And if, if you want a first step in learning how to pray with Jesus and communing with him on a regular basis, I wanna invite you to try praying the ACTS prayer. ACTS is an acronym for A, adoration. We give all our praise. To God, not to anybody else. We give all our praise to God and God alone and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Confession, we give our sin to God and we trust that he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us, to wash us new. We, we offer our thanksgiving to God. Psalm 111 says, praise the Lord. I will thank the Lord with all my heart as I meet with his godly people. Once again, staying connected. We give thanksgiving together as an interconnected body of individuals in relationship with one another. And then finally, supplication. We ask the Lord to provide all that we need. And as we become interconnected together, I'm, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me how God prov often provides for us through one another, through healthy, faithful relationships. And then last, mangroves offer protection. And the way that we practice this, the way that we practice protection together as a mangrove is by reading, studying, learning, and memorizing God's word, the Bible, which Paul calls the sword of the spirit, the only offensive weapon given to us, by the way. The only, the only weapon ever mentioned in the scriptures that God intends for you to use offensively. And yet so many of us don't even know it. So many of us don't read it. 
we, we, don't, we don't invest time into it. And so we resort to picking up the same weapons that others use against us to harm others. The same weapons that Balaam used against God's people, deceit, lies. We use gossip, slander, malice against people. And then we wonder why we feel like we're losing our battles. We, we, we wonder why we, we're not taking any ground or why our emotions feel so undone or why certain seasons of our life created such a mess because we're using, we're, we're using weapons against others that God never intended for us to use. And though they, they feel so right and good and cathartic and justifiable in the moment, every single one of these weapons will always backfire against us every single time every single time so instead give yourself some space give yourself some grace to learn God's word to learn how to use the sword of the spirit so that when you when you come across a battle that needs your attention that needs you to act offensively you know how to use it you know what to do you know how to win against those battles your pastors are here to help you. We have dedicated group leaders with resources available to you. Groups offer us all an opportunity to find a quality mentor to receive our questions and help us grow in understanding. Asking questions isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of courage to say, I don't really quite know what's going on here. Can you help me understand? That's a sign of strength. Friends, we can either find ourselves paralyzed by all kinds of sweet-sounding language that ultimately seeks to benefit those who say them, or we can win in our faith. We can win together by going low to the outside, by staying connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ, by standing strong like mighty mangroves together slinging the sword of the Spirit offensively in a way that honors others and that honors Jesus' presence in you. And if we do this, then I believe that we will see that nothing is too hard for God. There's no evil that we can't stand up against. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. Amen? Amen. I believe we will all walk into a fresh day where we will experience God's goodness and grace on us, knowing his word, experiencing life and life abundant together. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the scriptures. As difficult as they might be, as, as, as much time as it takes for us to understand them, Lord, we thank you for them because as we read them, we can't help us to have our eyes lifted to you. You are the fulfillment of this word. Your, your love so freely given to us, your grace so good to us, your character and heart always for us and always just. And so Lord, help us stay connected with you. Help us take our steps with you, Jesus. We need your strength to do this. We can't do it on our own. And we freely confess that whenever we do, we, oh my goodness, we find ourselves in such a mess. 
And so, Lord, we need you. We need you today. We need you to help us see with eyes clearly the difference between the deceit used against us and the good message of your word that gives life to us. And so, Lord, help us take our steps with you as we make this prayer in your name. Now, with heads still bowed, I want to give an opportunity for anyone here today who wants to begin a, a first step in their relationship with Jesus to pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, today I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you and I'm putting on your team jersey. Lord, I receive you for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm trusting you for my salvation and I need your strength to help me walk this life because I can't do it on my own. And so Lord, I need you now. Come into my life as I commit my life to you. If you prayed this prayer with me today and you want today to begin the first day of your journey with Jesus, then may I invite you with head still bowed and every eye still closed to simply raise your hand so that I can see you. Thank you, amen to my right. Thank you, thank you. In the right middle section, in the middle section, thank you. Praise God, praise God for your hands to my left. Hands all across this room. And Lord, we give thanks for every hand. You know them, you see them. And for each one of them today, they belong to you for the first time, first day. And so Lord, I, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. And Lord, as a church, as a mighty mangrove, I pray that you would only continue to strengthen us as we go about our week this week. Lord, help us see with your eyes. Help us lead your way as we make this prayer in your name, Jesus. Amen.